Welcome to TV7 Israel's podcast. We invite you to listen and share our latest content from Israel and the region. Jerusalem, this is Watchmen Talk, a series of conversations with Israeli military and security experts and practitioners. And our guest today for a second part of our talk is Brigadier General Doron Gavish. Shalom, welcome. Shalom, thank you. Uh, in our first part, uh, we took you all the way to a career officer course in the U.S. Army, because as we mentioned um, in the U.S. military, Air defense is part of the army rather than the air force. And this is going back to the uh, mid uh, or late 1980s. Exactly. What did you learn there? Oh, that was very interesting for me because it was really the first time that you see a other different military other than yours. This is Fort Seal, Oklahoma? This is, uh, no, it was in, back then it was in, uh, in Fort Bliss, which is uh, Texas, Texas uh, right next to Mexico. And uh, so for me, it was very interesting, first of all, to be exposed to the U.S. forces, which was first time. Uh, you see different culture, you see different uh, way of looking at things. Uh, Not the terrain and weather. They are comparable to the Negev in Israel. Well, but I have a nice story about it. Uh, that, um, you know, everyone told me El Paso, it's like Israel, so you will feel the same. Don't take a jacket even, it's very warm over there. Okay, so I went there, and then there was uh, what is called FTX, field training exercise. And they did it in White Sands. Now, White Sands is a desert. It's a real desert. It's a missile range. It's a missile range also. And uh, so we went there, and I remember sleeping during the night, and I was not waiting for it. But the temperatures went down. It was zero, maybe even below it. And uh, I, I just put it everything outside uh, of my tent. And uh, when I came back in the morning, Everything was freeze. My shoes was freeze. My my water bucket was. I mean, so I've learned. My, I've learned my lesson. But this is this is the part of the country depicted in the series Breaking Bad. For, the, for those who want uh, to imagine what El Paso and its uh, vicinity look like. <laughs> for me, it was nice. I liked El Paso. I still like El Paso. And uh, so it was different environment. The other thing that was very interesting there is that the, there were also inter other international officers. So my best friend was uh, Arturo Vaquero from, uh, uh, from Spain, who is still, by the way, in the military Spain. He's a three-star general, and we still... Uh, good friends uh, today. Uh, so it was also... In, in, in Does Spain um, have anyone to intercept? Any enemy that they need well, defense Spain, from? Spain is part of uh, Europe, and uh, in Europe they have their uh, own uh, missions and, uh, and threats. And uh, so, it, but it was interesting to meet uh, officers from Spain, from France, from, from other countries. Uh, so it, it, it really opens your mind for different cultures, different way of looking at things. Uh, and some things I think that we are very good, some things I think we should learn from others. And uh, so for me, it was, it was really great uh, experience. And I, I've learned a lot from, from this first uh, experience that, uh, you know, in a way it opened for me the door to, 
to other experience in the future during the first Gulf War and then during my uh, time in the Air War College. And uh, so really it was first time that uh, I was opened uh, to, uh, to other militaries, which was, so I think, very important. So let's skip for a moment uh, the Gulf War of 1991 and your part in absorbing the first Patriot uh, units and go to the Air War College um, at uh, Maxwell Air Base, Montgomery, Alabama. Mm-hmm, exactly. What was your experience then? You should say Alabama. I will. <laughs> Alabama. Uh, yeah, it, 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 that was really interesting experience for me uh, because back then I was already a senior uh, lieutenant uh, colonel. Uh, most of my uh, counterparts and uh, colleagues were colonels. Uh, most of them from the U.S. Uh, uh, from the U.S. forces, different uh, forces, mainly Air Force, but also from the Navy and from the uh, from other organizations. And uh, also over there, it was very, very interesting to meet the, the international officers. And more than that, it was first time that I really had close, I would say, relations, unofficial relations, because it, we couldn't uh, have uh, official relations, with officers from the, from the Gulf states, uh, from Egypt, from Jordan, from Oman, uh, from, from Saudi, I mean, everywhere from, from, uh, um, uh, from Morocco. There was, there was a group of officers that uh, we could really discuss. Uh, again, everything is unofficial, of course, but you're there, you're there together. And it was very, very important to get their perspective on the Gulf War, for example, and, and from other on both that, On both a human and a professional level. Exactly, both human and uh, professional level. So for me, it was, from this, from this angle, it was very, very interesting. And of course, you know, the studies, I mean, it's master degree, uh, it helps you to polish your English, and uh, it helps you also... Uh, Better to, to polish your English than to English your Polish. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, we say we speak Ibrish. They speak English, we speak Ibrish. And, uh, but, but yes, the, the, it, was, it was very, very interesting. And also, you know, some, some of the courses that we, take, we took was about U.S. For, for me also, it was very interesting to be exposed to the U.S. history, uh, to some things that I was not exposed before. So from a cultural point of view, from a professional point of view, from a, from a personal point of view, it was amazing uh, year. But really. you know that from the American point of view, um, there are several advantages. One is, of course, interoperability. Exactly. If you belong to a military organization, which later might fight side by side in a coalition with the others. And another one is that you are all Americanized to some extent. And when you go home, you bring with you the American perspective. Well, you know, I don't know if it's Americanized. I think that uh, it's, as you said, I mean, you, you see the American uh, perspective, uh, but, you know, everyone is looking from his own perspectives, and uh, we, we really, we talked about it, and we talked about it freely. And uh, we talked about the situation, and everyone was, you know, showing how, his own interest, his own angles, how he looks. Uh, there were some debates were very tough debates, uh, uh, but... It, it was important, really, to be exposed. I, I understand the U.S. point of view, by the way. It's not only the U.S. point of view. It's every country today, every military wants to have uh, relations with others uh, to enhance its capabilities during fight if it would come. And uh, also to, you know, to expose his own uh, interest and, uh, and uh, 
So, General Gavish, let's go back to the Patriot. And there were two problems with the um, idea mm-hmm. of uh, a surface uh, or air-to-air missile or in air intercept um, in the Israeli Air Force in the late 1980s mm-hmm. and until the 1991 war. The first one was the Air Force doctrine, which said that Israel must put uh, its dollars or shekels on offensive mm-hmm. systems because mm-hmm. they are versatile. The uh, plane can be here and there and perform several missions, while a bunker or a shelter or an air defense system would be stationary mm-hmm. and uh, could only perform one mission. And if the Air Force has uh, air superiority, no threat will materialize. So this was an internal Israeli uh, issue. The other one was the so-called ABM Treaty, where the Soviet Union and the United States decided to stop mm-hmm. developing the air defense systems uh, in order not to shoot the other side's missiles because they feared that the arms race uh, would escalate and there would be no stability um, in the uh, balance of, uh, of terror, mm-hmm. in the de- mutual deterrence. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, come late 1990, early 1991, there are threats by Saddam Hussein mm-hmm. to attack Israel for various reasons. One was revenge for the destruction of the nuclear reactor in 1981. And the other one was political, Mm -hmm. in order to break the coalition apart, to uh, fabricate some excuse for the Iraqi military to leave Kuwait and ostensibly uh, march on Jerusalem. And you find yourself without the necessary tools to defend Israeli airspace when the Air Force, the flying Air Force, is forbidden from striking targets in Western Iraq. Mm-hmm. I think this is, it's not only us, it's Israel. Israel uh, <coughs> found itself in, in this uh, situation that uh, there are no real tools to uh, defense against missiles uh, that were coming from, from Iraq. But, but you know, it's, 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 uh, your question really allows, allows me to talk about Israel's strategy. Uh, or defense strategy uh, that was designed during Ben-Gurion time, you know, in 48. And, and back then, we, we, we looked on a few pillars. One of them was the need uh, to be good in the attack, to be very decisive in the attack. Uh, the other one was, uh, was to have a, a, a good uh, alert. And, and so we, need, we needed those, uh, those uh, capabilities. Um, um, in order to, uh, uh, I would say, to fight against our enemies. Israel doesn't have strategic depth, so this is why it has to look on, on those main uh, uh, pillars. Uh, so decisiveness, uh, alert, and, and the idea of defense as a pillar of our national strategy came very late, uh, basically after the 90s. So before the 90s, to speak about the defense, was not part of our culture. Uh, we said the best uh, defense is offense. That, those were the, our statement. The 67, of course, the preemptive attack worked. So this was really the, the, the way that uh, Israel looked on, the, on its mission. And you're completely right that what happened in the, in, the, in the beginning of the 90s is that we understood that there is a pillar that is missing. 
to Israel, this pillar of defense. Uh, so what that for, for political or other reasons, the Israeli defense forces and within it, the Israeli Air Force would not be allowed to launch a preemptive strike, an offensive mission, but would have to wait and absorb the first and blow and perhaps others and protect military and civilian assets by air defense. Exactly. So, so um, you know, from a political reason this time, I mean, 90 was really a good example of it, or from other reasons, uh, you could not use all your attack capabilities. So, uh, okay, now you can't use your attack capabilities, but uh, you are weak on the defense. So, so, and again, this is something that came after the 90s, really the idea that uh, being the alert, the decisiveness and attack, it's not enough. You need also another pillow, the defense pillow. So we, we'll get, I'm sure we'll get into it. But going back to your question, in 90 what happened is that uh, everyone looked around and the only system that might do something against those missiles from, uh, from Iraq was the Patriot system, which was a, a completely ABT system, which is AB, sorry, ABT mean air breathing targets uh, a system. The, the engineers of the, of, of, the, of the company, the maker of the company, thought that maybe we could do also something against missiles, so let's try it. That's Raytheon? That's Raytheon, and, uh, and uh, you know, we t this is what we try to do. Uh, not with a big success, by the way. Uh, but, but so it it's against planes, not missiles? Exactly. Again, um, we're talking about back in the 90s. Today, it's a different uh, story. Uh, so with this, we, we had to fight. This is what, what we had. And what was also interesting, I would say, that, you know, this is really the first time that there was a fight like this. It's, it's not that the world, uh, you have a lot of experience of how to fight uh, missiles. Well, there, there was the war of the cities between Iran and Iraq a few years earlier, but they didn't have such systems. Exactly, but it was only, I mean, missiles were falling down. There was not a defend. Uh, so you had American and Dutch battalions yes. coming over because Israel didn't have anything of its own, mm -hmm. and you liaised with them? My, my job, um, uh, it was even before the war. I mean, it was uh, something around uh, three or four months before the war that uh, there was a discussion between the U.S. and Israel. Arens, who was back then our minister of defense, um, uh, thought that it would be a good idea to bring in those uh, patriots. Of course, it was U.S. interest also to, be, to, to bring in the patriot, as you said, in order to keep the, the coalition. And so we were there for something like three months studying the system. My job, I was the chief uh, instructor, let's put it from the, from the Israeli side. I was the one who was uh, in charge on uh, making sure that we are studying what we need to study, which was uh, we had to, because we understood that we don't have too much time, so we had to adjust uh, the way of uh, studying and uh, asking a lot of questions like Israelis uh, usually do. And, uh, uh, and But then what happened is that when, and I, and I remember this night, you know, like it was yesterday, I remember that uh, we are sitting in the room and, uh, and someone is telling us there was a missile attack in Tel Aviv. And uh, after a um, few days, we found ourselves uh, in Israel to this deployment that you just uh, mentioned. Uh, the two first batteries, we call them Israeli batteries because the operators were Israelis, like like myself and others, like like me and others, and uh, uh, but the, the the technician, the maintainer, it was kind of a I would say combined effort USI. So we were sitting really shoulder to shoulder, and and you know back in the history, who pushed the button? 
mainly it was us uh, on those two batteries, but there were other batteries, another four batteries, which were uh, fully U.S. batteries. So our batteries were deployed in Tel Aviv area, the U.S. batteries were deployed in uh, in Hulon, in uh, Batyam, in, up in the north, in these, Haifa. These are towns outside of Tel Aviv. Exactly. And, uh, and, uh, but, but it was really the first time that uh, mainly, mainly, it, maybe it happened on the 50s, but uh, it was, uh, I would say, in the, in the last uh, 50 years or something like this, that, uh, that Israelis and U.S., it, for the U.S. forces, by the way, it was the first time, because in the 50s it was French and uh, in U.K., but it was the first time that you sit shoulder to shoulder and you fight. You are really fighting against uh, missiles, uh, you know, take, having in mind that uh, the, the next attack would be uh, an unconventional attack. Did they also bring their radar systems and early warning uh, systems in order, in order to link them? To the uh, batteries? The, what they've worked with them was all the asset, the Patriot assets, which uh, the, the, uh, the, the asset, the battery itself contains also, also a radar. So yes, there is a Link 16 in between, uh, in between the radars. Uh, but but it, was, uh, it was really the first time in Israel and in Saudi uh, that there was a real fight against uh, missiles. And Now, there was a lot the, of lessons learned from In the, the briefing, in the lessons learned following mm-hmm. The uh, six-week uh, war, it was between mid-January and mm-hmm. late February. Yeah. Um, and um, it turned out that perhaps only one Israeli was killed by these missiles. Others uh, were wounded. Um, but one of the lessons was that uh, the Patriots did not intercept the SCAD missiles from Iraq, mm-hmm. but they, to some extent, reassured the Israeli public that it is not helpless, that there is some reason, some, mm-hmm. some statistical hope at least, mm-hmm. that uh, some uh, intercept will be successful. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a great point, because you do have a, a mission, which is a state mission. And, and one of it is really to allow the, 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 publics, the, the public to feel, uh, uh, to feel that it is uh, secured. And back then, uh, You know, it's, it's very, I think, very interesting uh, to mention it because when you're saying it, it was not a success, from, I, I, will look, I would look at it for a second from a military point, a pure military tactic uh, point of view. So from a pure military po- uh, point of view, the battery is defending an area. Let's say Tel Aviv. And the missile was coming, the SCAD missile was coming, and the Patriot was trying to intercept it. And he hit it. And now the SCAD fell down in Ramat Gan. It didn't fail in Tel Aviv. So if you ask the battery commander back then, the U.S. battery commander, he would say it is success in the because, because the offensive missile was deflected from its course. Exactly. So, so the battery commander said, I defended my area. I was, I'm responsible on Tel Aviv. I defended. From our point of view, the Israelis... It doesn't, it doesn't matter it doesn't what, what matter. city it... Uh, and, and when you asked him, he said there was an interception. If you ask us, we said we failed in the mission. This was exactly, by the way, what was in my mind for the first interceptions of the Iron Dome. The first question that I asked myself as the commander of the air defense was when I said there was an interception, what does it mean? When I said to, uh, to, our, uh, uh, to, to my Air Force commander, to the IDF commander, and to, uh, to our, our prime minister, because the first interceptions were, 
we were debriefing directly uh, to, to those uh, people. So, so we will get to Iron Dome. Okay. Uh, but I'll, ju- I'll just, yes, I'll just ahead, mention there that what was in our mind is that interception in the Iron Dome means a warhead kill. Only if you kill the warhead, then it's interception. It was different uh, during the Gulf War. So that was a, a very important lesson learned from, from those times. So the first Iron Dome intercept, April 7, 2011, yeah. um, almost exactly 11 uh, years ago. Time flies. Not only rockets fly, time flies <laughs> You're too. Right. Uh, now, after uh, the uh, Gulf War, Israel started working through its defense industry on the arrow. Mm-hmm. Was that part of your mission too? Uh, our mission, um, and this is something which is quite unique in Israel, the military is involved almost for day one of every, um, uh, I would say, uh, uh, every, every, every time that the, the, um, the, the, uh, the companies, the defense companies are deciding to, uh, to build the system. It's not that they will do it by themselves. It's something that is happening together with the, with the IDF uh, there, there is, uh, or with the Ministry of Defense. They have to get say. R&D money. Exactly, and all, and all those things. And, uh, and our part is, because we are very close to them, is to feedback. Uh, what they are doing, and uh, so so yes, we were part of it on on this uh, on this essence that we were there. Uh, we were being asked, uh, what do you think? What do you think about uh, the the you know the main machine interface? What do you think about the system and and so on? So it was it was a close relation. So yes, we, we could say that we were there from from day one. Thirty years ago, um, you probably like every other Israeli and uh, mostly Israeli uh, military officers. You wouldn't have believed that three decades would go and the arrow would not have to be deployed against shihabs or other missiles. But it turned out that it wasn't the um, uh, very far threats uh, that that concerned Israeli citizens, but the short-range ones, Katyushas, then Qassams, Mm -hmm. then uh, Grad uh, missiles and and the like. Mm -hmm. So what was the point where the emphasis moved from Arrow or David Sling or the other mm-hmm. systems to Iron Dome. Okay, I, I wouldn't say, again, from, from a defender point of view, okay, it's, it's not that the emphasis was for one side uh, uh, and not to, to the other. Because your job as the commander of the Israeli Air and Missile Defense and, and every, every other commander looked at it in this way, is to build your um, defense against all threats. Some of them, the public saw. I mean, the Iron Dome was there. Everyone saw it on the, on the, on the, on the TV. It was all over the place. But we still need to prepare ourselves against those uh, missiles that uh, would come from Iran, from this Syria. This is the difference, the difference between Iron Dome and Iran Dome. Okay, you could say this. You could put it in this way. So we need to defend ourselves against all threat, and this is, you know, when you look in, the, in Israel, what is really unique in, in our environment is that you you have threats from a very short uh, distance, a very long distance. You have a threat which could come from 363 uh, di- directions. Uh, so it's you have to prepare yourself. So and this was, I would say, I, I, I would. I would look at it from a strategic point of view and from operational military point of view. What happened after the 90s, 
and we just mentioned it before, is that Israel understood that within its national security uh, defense policy, it, uh, it must have another pillar, which is the defense pillar. And if you break down this defense pillar, you have an active defense, like the Iron Dome and other systems, and the passive defense. And this was when the Home Front Command was uh, designed as, as another command of, of Israel. Shelters or protected exactly. spaces in buildings. Exactly. So how you defend yourself? You defend yourself by intercepting the, uh, the missiles and by uh, educating, I would say, the population to go to the shelters and to build shelters in each, uh, in, in each and every hours. So this was the first thing from a national level. And from an operational military level, we came with this concept with multi-tier defense. You have an Iron Dome system who is defending against the short range, but you have David Sling, and you have the Arrow 2, and then Arrow 3, which are the ones that will defend against uh, long range. So it, it, was a it was a long answer to, to your question, but it really triggered a, a very important, uh, I think, um, things that happened within the defense of Israel. But is it cost-effective with each missile? It's called Tamir mm -hmm. um, in Israel. Each missile costing so much. And uh, the enemy is launching uh, relatively cheap mm -hmm. rockets and missiles at you in order for you to uh, launch back a couple of missiles or more so you can uh, economically lose even if militarily win. Yeah. It's not how much this cost and I mean, how much the, the enemy rocket cost and our missile cost. By the way, in the military terms, the Iron Dome cost is very, very, very low. But, but anyhow, the question is, what is the cost that if we want intercepted and then it will fall down, uh, what is the cost to our economy? What is the life-saving cost? I mean, imagine yourself that someone, do, do, we, uh, do we look at it on a cost if someone will, died from it? And, if and we, also, if there are casualties, you will be dragged into a ground war, exactly. which will be much more expensive. Exactly. So, so the question is really, no, it's not one against uh, the other. And imagine yourself in the last campaign, last May, last May the Hamas shot toward Israel 4,500 rockets. Some of them were to the, heart, to, the cities, to the heart of the cities of Israel. Where we are Ashkelon, sitting now. And where we are sitting now, Jerusalem and, and Ashkelon and, and Tel Aviv. 90% of those were intercepted by the Iron Dome. Imagine yourself that those were falling into our cities. It was, we were in a completely... General Gavish, uh, <clears throat> we came to the um, uh, end of our conversation. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have more time. But as uh, a last point, uh, you are in charge of uh, some of the coordination with uh, American forces when they exercise uh, in austere challenge or Juniper Cobra exercises, mm -hmm. Aegis uh, um, naval assets coming um, to Israel. What can Israel expect in a contingency? Well, uh, I think that um, this is a very strategic and important um, uh, asset that we as an Israelis have, those relations uh, with the U.S. Uh, forces and the U.S. Joint Task Force who, is, uh, uh, who would come uh, in Israel to enhance our defense. It's important from a deterrence point of view. It is important from... Uh, uh, Israel's capabilities, uh, because the U.S. brings with them their own patriots, their own systems, uh, their own uh, um, uh, navy uh, systems. So, 
It's very, very important for the defense of, of Israel. Uh, last point, I, I must mention that, you know, we, we're talking about the generals and the high level, and but by the end of the day, those are young women and men who are there fighting, even today, defending uh, Israel, doing an amazing 18 uh, job. 18 to 21, 22 years old. 21, 22 years old, very responsible, very professional, and I have a huge respect to them and to the way that their defense is, is today, really. Brigadier General Doron Gavish, thank you very much for a most interesting conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was also interesting to me to them. Thank you for joining us in another TV7 Israel podcast. For more content, visit our website at tv7israelnews.com or follow us on social media.